My name is Jared O'Brien, and this is the Christians Engaging Culture podcast. Christians Engaging Culture exists to equip the members of St. Thomas's to give a faithful answer in everyday cultural conversations and to turn those conversations to the gospel. Currently, we're thinking about evangelism because our goal isn't simply to win an argument, but to share the good news of Jesus. This week lays the foundation for confident personal evangelism. We recognise that evangelism is challenging in our post-Christian culture, and so in our podcast we are going to hear from a training seminar Sam Chan gave at Church by the Bridge, explaining why things are difficult and providing some excellent approaches to address these challenges. Please also check out the website for a number of other resources, including a video from Tim Keller discussing how to share the gospel in culturally diverse cities and a quick evangelism coaching guide you could discuss with a friend or in your discipleship group. We have an event coming up for Christians Engaging Culture. John Mason will be holding a two-week course on evangelism on Sundays 7th and 14th of July between the 8am and 10am services. So put that in your diary now and you can register on the website by clicking on the coming events menu item. But for now, here is Sam Chan on sharing the gospel in modern Australia. All right, so my name is Sam and I am Asian. And what you've got to realise is most Asians cannot swim. So almost every Asian has a near drowning experience story to tell you. Almost every Asian can tell you how they went to a barbecue with Aussie friends and some well-meaning Aussie friend pushed them into the pool assuming they could swim. When I was in primary school, I was the only kid in my class who could not swim because I was the only Asian in my class. And I remember the swimming teacher didn't know what to do with someone who couldn't swim. Up until then, everyone in her class could swim. So she didn't know what to do with me. All she kept doing was yell at me, swim, as if by magic I could swim. And you think, you know, if I could swim, I would be doing it. Then show me how to do it. And I remember one time I drowned so much, I breathed in so much water, I vomited my lunch back up into the pool. And so for the rest of the lesson, my lunch was doing laps around the pool, scaring all the other swimmers. But see, if someone's drowning, there's no point yelling, swim, at them, because they would be swimming if they could do it. And evangelism is the same. We often say to Christians, you know, you should tell your friends about Jesus. And that's the thing, well, I would be doing it if I knew how to do it. And even something like this, everyday evangelism just fills us with dread and guilt. Oh, they're going to make me feel guilty for not telling my friends about Jesus. And the point is, we would be doing it if we knew how to do it. We can't say to people, swim, and we can't say to people, hey, just tell your friends about Jesus, because we would be doing it if we knew how to do it. So the purpose of tonight is over the next 60 minutes, I'm going to share maybe some... uh, tips, some guidelines that have worked for me. They're not, they're not silver bullets. They're not guaranteed to work. Uh, they're good ways. They're not the only ways. Maybe you've got some better ways. And I'm not saying you better do it this way or you're doing it the wrong way. No, there are multiple ways of doing it. But I'm just going to share with you a handful of ways to do it. So how can we tell our friends about Jesus? How can we do everyday evangelism? I've just got a handful of tips to give us tonight. The first one I want to share is this. We need to get our friends to become their friends. We need to get our friends to become their friends. Well, what do I mean about this? Well, imagine if I got up here now and I said this. You know, last night, 
my wife and I were kicking back in our home in Croydon Park near Stratfield. We were watching TV like we do every night. And at 9pm, this UFO landed in our backyard. And this green man got out and he told us to come into the UFO. And so my wife and I did. And he took us to his home planet, Jupiter. We got out. And he showed us around Jupiter, showed us his friends and family. We had a meal with him. And then we got back in the UFO and we flew back to planet Earth. And because of the whole space-time continuum thing, only one second of Earth time had gone by and we came back to Croydon Park, our home, as if nothing had happened. Hands up here, who believes the story? Who here believes me that that happened to me last night? Hands up. All right. No one. No one. No one in this room believes the story. I'm going to tell you another story. 2,000 years ago, God sent us his son, Jesus. And I don't know how it works, but somehow Jesus was 100% God and 100% human at the same time. And while he was on earth, he healed blind people so they could see. He raised a dead girl from death and brought her back to life. And he died on a cross, and I don't know how it works, but somehow by believing he died on a cross, all our sins against God are wiped away clean. And he died, but he didn't stay dead. Three days later, he came back to life out of the grave. And if you put your trust in him, his spirit will live in you now. And he's in heaven right now, but he's everywhere at the same time. And one day he's going to come back to earth, set up a kingdom here on earth. And if you die, your body is going to come out of the grave and meet your soul. Who here believes that story? <laughs> wow. Okay, I saw quite a lot of hands go up. Now at this point you think, why are you happy to believe the second story, but not the first story? And as I'm telling you the second story, it sounds less believable than the first story, doesn't it? You think, who here could possibly believe this story? So why are we happy to believe the Jesus story, but not the Jupiter story? Because the Jupiter story is probably more believable than the Jesus story. So why are we happy to believe the Jesus story, but not the Jupiter story? Because of what philosophers call plausibility structures. You and I have pre-programmed, predetermined plausibility structures that prejudge what we hear. And based on our predetermined, pre-programmed plausibility structures that prejudge what we hear, we decide whether a story is plausible or not plausible. Because of these predetermined, pre-programmed plausibility structures that prejudge what we hear. So as I'm telling you the planet Jupiter story, your predetermined, pre-programmed plausibility structures are prejudging what I'm saying. And so here's me, happy telling you my Jupiter story. And here's you, you're not quite sure what to do with it. And your plausibility structures are red flagging, ba 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 everything I'm saying. So as I was saying, last night, this UFO landed in our backyard. Bah, bah, bah. Your plausibility structure is going red flag. Bah, bah, bah. Implausible, implausible, implausible. And then we jumped in the UFO. We went to the planet Jupiter. We got out, showed us around. You're going, 
ba, 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 implausible, implausible, implausible. And then we got back in the UFO and we flew back and we went through a space-time continuum, a time portal, and in one second of Earth time went by, your plausibility structure's going, ba, 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 red flag, red flag, red flag, implausible, implausible, implausible. And so when I say, do you believe me? You go, nah, implausible. You have prejudged the story. But as I tell you the Jesus story, I say, you won't believe this. It's hard to believe, but 2,000 years ago, God sent us his son, Jesus, 100% human, 100% God. You're going, bling, 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 green light, green light, green light, plausible, plausible, plausible. He died on a cross, and if you put your trust in him, all your sins are taken away. Bling, 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 green light, green light, green light, plausible, plausible, plausible. He died, and he rose again back to life three days later. Bling, 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 green light, green light, green light, plausible, plausible, plausible. And so you're happy to believe that story because you predetermined, pre-programmed plausibility structures that prejudge what you just heard. Now your question is this, where do these plausibility structures come from? Well, they come from three main sources. They come from our community. They come from our experience or experiences. And they come from what we determine to be the facts, the data, and the evidence that might back up the claim. So as I tell you the planet Jupiter UFO story, none of us here right now belong in a community where we believe in UFOs. As I tell you the planet Jupiter UFO story, none of us here have had a personal experience of a UFO landing in our backyard. And as I tell you the planet Jupiter UFO story, none of us here believe there are any facts, evidence, or data for that story. So you're happy to say implausible. But as I tell you the Jesus story, right now, most of us here belong in a community who also believe the Jesus story. As I tell you the Jesus story, most of us here have had a personal experience of Jesus in our life. As I tell you the Jesus story, most of us here believe there are enough facts, evidence and data, especially in the Bible, to support my claim of the Jesus story. So our plausibility structures then bling, 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 green light the Jesus story, but not the Jupiter story. Now, out of these three sources that determine our plausibility structures, which one do you think is the most determinative, the most important one? Well, whether we like it or not, rightly or wrongly, it's this one. It's community that is most powerful in forming plausibility structures. So imagine this, if I said to you, you know, the UFO, facts, data, evidence, is in my backyard right now, who here would believe me? And I said, no, no, really, really, it's there in my backyard, why don't we all catch a train out to Croydon tonight, now, and at midnight, you can miss a bit of sleep, but you can see the UFO, who here would do it? Who here would be willing to give up a night's sleep? Two hands. The rest said, nah, 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 I'm not going. There's no UFO. And they go, really, really, there is a UFO in my backyard. And those two brave people will come and you see the UFO and you touch it, you see it, you touch it with your hands. You're at that moment there, nah, there's some mistake here, okay? This is fraud. This is a hoax. This is just an elaborate plan to make me believe a UFO story. So... No matter how compelling the facts, data, evidence are, people just don't use them to form beliefs in a very powerful way. The most powerful is community for forming beliefs, because right now none of us live in a community that believe in UFOs. 
when we had our second son, Cooper, it was interesting. Like every parent, when they have a child, they play the same game. We want a name not so common, like John, David, or Peter, but we don't want to name our kid with a funky name, like Matthew with three T's and a silent Q, so now he needs therapy for the rest of his life. So every parent is trying to play that game. They want to name their kids, not too common a name, not too funky a name, that sweet spot just in the middle that shows the parents are hip, cool, trendy with it, like on the cutting edge of fashion. You know, they're right on the front when it comes to naming their kids. So we thought, Cooper, that's the name, Cooper. Not too common, not too funky, just right. So we named our second son Cooper, and that year, Cooper was a top 10 name in New South Wales. So we went boring. We thought we were being funky, but really, we were just doing what the community around us was doing. We're like sheep. We do what the people around us do, and we believe what the people around us believe. All right, so just interestingly, okay, who here, um, now we're all Bible-believing, Christians, that sort of thing, who here believes uh, women have the right to vote? Wow, okay, almost everyone, everyone's too scared, you know, I go, yeah, yeah, I'm for it, I'm totally for it, I'm totally for it, yeah, yeah, yeah. But you know, 100 years ago, Bible-believing Christians didn't believe women had the right to vote, and Liechtenstein only approved it like 20 years ago. So this is a very community-determined belief. It doesn't come from the Bible. It's a very community-determined belief. All right, so I lived in America for five years, again, with Bible-believing Christians, and we're Bible-believing Christians here in Australia. Who here believes we have the right to bear arms? Like, as we came in the church tonight, we should have been allowed to pack heat. Uh, like, all of us should be armed. Like, who here thinks we should have been allowed a concealed weapon as we came into the doors? Okay, just two or three brave people. Okay, and um, the rest of us aren't, you're not going to tell me because you've got a concealed weapon. But, <laughs> but in America, almost every hand would have gone up. Again, we're both Bible-believing Christians, but our beliefs come from our community. We do what the people around us do. We believe what the people around us believe. Who here believes in public education, like the government should pay for our education? All right, most, hand, most hands, majority, majority. Who here think we should have public health? The government should pay for our health. We should have a safety net. Almost every single hand. Who here thinks motorcyclists should wear helmets? Like it should be compulsory, mandatory. It's their head, but we have a right to tell them what to do with their head. All right, so most of us. Now, have I done that, had I done the same thing in America, in a Bible-believing church, they would have been against public education because why should my money go to someone else who's not working hard enough and why should they get education from my money? They don't believe in public health. Again, why should I have to pay for someone else uh, if they didn't work hard enough to afford their own health care? And they don't believe we should put helmets on motorcycles because it's their head. They have every right to do what they want with their head and who are we to tell them what to do with their head? Besides, if they have an accident, at least they're paying for the healthcare costs and not us. So, again, it's community, community, community. All right. Uh, and, I, and just imagine you came in tonight and I told you the Jupiter story. I told you the Jupiter story. And I am the one and only schmuck in this room of 100 people who said, I saw a UFO last night. And you're listening, you're like, oh, okay, okay, you're dreaming there was no UFO. But imagine now, you came in tonight, and I said, last night, a UFO landed in our backyard. And this half of the room said, yeah, that happened to us last night as well. 
We had a UFO. We went to Jupiter. We, I thought that was you, but I just wasn't sure, so I didn't want to wave or say hi. Now, how does this half of the room feel? So you think, hey, this might be a bit more believable than I thought it was. It changes your plausibility structures now. Now, let's say you came in and everyone in the room said, yeah, I saw a UFO as well. I went to Jupiter and you're now the one and only schmuck who didn't have the Jupiter story happen to you. How are you feeling? Suddenly the story is sounding very believable, very plausible. And that's what Paul appeals to in the Bible. says, hey, I saw Jesus risen from the dead. Not just me, but all the apostles did. And not just them, 500 other people saw it. So at this point now, it's more plausible. There's a community of people who saw Jesus risen from the dead. Now let's say you're a young teenager. You go to a church in a regional town in New South Wales. And so youth group is like three teenagers on a Friday night. You go there. How does the Jesus story feel for you right now? Not very believable. There's only three schmucks in the whole town who believe the story of Jesus. But let's say once a year your youth group goes to Katuma, you go to Kick, and suddenly you're in 2,000 other teenagers your age. You're moshing and you're worshipping Jesus. Suddenly now it becomes more believable, doesn't it? There are 2,000 other people who believe this story. All right, so where am I going with this? Typically when we try to tell our friends about Jesus, we're very good on this bit here. Let me give you the facts, data and evidence but we're not good on this bit here, which is much more powerful in determining belief, rightly or wrongly, whether we like it or not. So typically when we evangelize, we go solo. We think, okay, that's it. I need to tell my friends about Jesus. I'm going to join a tennis team. I'm going to join a book club, and I'm going to meet with other non-Christians. The trouble with that is you've gone solo. So now in a book club of 20 people, you're the one schmuck that believes in Jesus. And you can keep talking about Jesus and, you know, God can work a miracle, anyone can believe. But right now, the story seems very, very unbelievable because we're doing it solo. We need to use the power of community. So what we need to do is start getting our friends to become their friends. So usually, us Christians, we have two separate universes. We have a universe of our Christian friends and a universe of our non-Christian friends. So when the Christian friends go off to a movie, hey, we all go off to a movie with them. When our non-Christian friends go off to a movie, hey, yeah, we go off to a movie. When our Christian friends do a barbecue, yeah, let's do a barbecue together. When our non-Christian friends do a barbecue, yeah, let's do a barbecue. But we have two separate universes. In this universe of non-Christians, we're the one Christian there who believes the Jesus story. So what we need to do is work hard at merging our universes. So... Uh, when our Christian friends go to the movies, they say, hey, can I bring some of my friends along? So you bring five or ten of your non-Christian friends to the movies, and suddenly now in a room of 20 people, ten are non-Christian, but ten are Christian. And it becomes much more plausible, the Jesus story. Or when your non-Christians go to the movies, they say, hey, hey, can I bring some of my friends along? And gradually your universes will merge. I saw this happen in a really powerful way when I shared accommodation. And one of the easiest ways of getting our universes to merge is to, to share accommodation or offer accommodation. But I shared accommodation. I was working as a doctor, and I had three non-Christian flatmates. I was the only Christian in the flat, but that meant all my Christian friends would come over when we ever had a, a video night or popcorn night or pizza night, and suddenly they're the three non-Christians in a crowd of 40 Christians. 
But they became friends. So every time we went out, we invited them. Every time they went out, they invited us. And gradually, the universes merged. And after two years, my three non-Christian friends started coming to church. And all three would have said they, they gave their lives to Jesus in some way. But it took about one or two years. It's, it's a very, very slow progress, uh, process because it takes time to merge universes. So what I'm saying is we need to get our friends to become their friends. We need to merge our universes, try really hard to get our non-Christian friends to become friends with our Christian friends and our Christian friends to come over become friends with our non-Christian friends. Some suggested ways would be by sharing and offering accommodation. Other ways, um, this is to point one, we need to go to their things before they come to our things. We need to go to their things before they come to our things. I often get asked to speak at churches for these outreach events. So I'm the guy up front who gets to talk about Jesus. And a friend of mine called Andrew organises a lot of these events. And whenever I go, I notice Andrew is there as the organiser, but he's surrounded by about five of his non-Christian friends they're different friends every time, and they're happy to be there. I can see it in their body language. They are so happy to be there, and afterwards they always tell me they had a great time. It was a great night. So I went to Andrew's wife, Jackie. I said, Jackie, what is Andrew doing? Every time he does one of these things, he has five non-Christian friends, different friends every time, and they're happy to be at these evangelistic events. And Jackie said, well, that's because we do this all the time. We always hang out. We always go out together. We go to their things. So this is just one of many things that we do together. Meaning when they go to the movies, we go to the movies. When their kids have some school thing on, they go to the kids thing. Uh, When they have a sports thing on, they go to the sports thing. So you're naturally always hanging out. And so when it's time to invite them to one of our Christian-y things... It's just one of many things we naturally already do. We naturally hang out together. You see, if, if we don't hang out with our non-Christian friends normally, naturally, we don't go to their things, then suddenly when the church says, hey, we have a men's breakfast coming up, invite your friends, now you have got to go up to a non-Christian friend and say, we've got a men's breakfast breakfast would you like to come and you got to think how strange is that invitation like when do men do breakfast together anyway and and, and they're thinking oh he's coming he's coming here i know he's going to ask us about the breakfast you know but if you're always going out all the time anyway this is just one of many things you naturally do together so this is all part of merging the universes still on point one another thing another helpful tip is what I call the coffee dinner gospel sequence. So Steph and I always try to invite our non-Christian friends first for coffee and then for dinner and then there will be times we can talk about the gospel. And that's the the sequence we we try to go in. Um, And... It's not easy. Steph and I have moved several times in the last few years of our married life. 
And you know, this bit is already very, very hard to do. But there's certain things you can do to make it easy. So whenever we move to a new place, we preemptively visit all our neighbours around us, you know, like all of the eight neighbours around us. Uh, we, we give them a gift, you know, it could be wine, could be beer, could be nuts, could be fruit, could be flowers. Give them a card with your name and your contact details on it so they don't forget your names and then it's not awkward for them to see you on the, on the street. And, and just introduce yourselves. And, and, this, and that way you get to know the street and then, then we try to have barbecues where we invite people over we, we try it on Friday night every now and then say, hey, let's do a pizza wine night so no one has to cook. And, and we don't notice by doing pizza, you take the cooking element and the washing element out of it. So it's really easy and everyone just chips in afterwards for the pizza. So we've done that several times uh, and to slowly get to know the street. But what are we trying to do? Well, we have this rule where we're doing the coffee dinner gospel thing. Why are we doing it that way? Well, let's take an aside. Let's take an aside to understand why it's so hard to tell our friends about Jesus, we have to understand that something happened in the 1600s in the Western world in a movement called the Enlightenment. And there was a famous German philosopher called Immanuel Kant. And what he did was he divided everything we know in the universe into two realms, the noumenal realm and the phenomenal realm. And the phenomenal realm is the world we can see and touch. So it's a realm of facts, evidence, and data. The noumenal realm is the world of values, ethics, and religion. And he's saying these things all exist. He's not saying they don't exist. But we have access to this. We don't have access to that. Meaning, facts, evidence, and data, that's one plus one equals two. The sky is blue. That's facts, evidence, and data. That's the phenomenal realm. Numinal realm, values, ethics, abortion is wrong. Gun control is wrong. There is a God. There is not a God. Well, how do you prove that? So we have no access to that knowledge. And so because of that, the whole Western world has been divided for the last four to 500 years into a division between the sacred and the secular, the private and the public. So religion is for the private realm, science, facts, evidence and data is for the public secular realm. And that's why, what are we always taught never to talk about at dinner party? Religion and politics, because that's the noumenal realm. Why? Because you will start arguments. There is a God. No, there is not a God. And there's an argument. Whereas if we say one plus one equals two and the sky is blue, boy, the weather was hot today, no one's going to go, no, it wasn't. Uh, because, so we're always going to agree about this. So it's always going to be safe. And so for the last four to 500 years, what's happened is the Western world in Australia has become an unofficial closed country. Because you're not allowed to talk about God in public. So we're actually an unofficial, de facto, closed country. So let's say, I say, hey, tonight, let's reclaim Australia. Let's go out there on the, on the public streets of Kirribilli and we'll have an open-air prayer meeting. And I'm going to pray, dear God, you know, we love you, we worship you, thank you for being God. Who here wants to join me in this open-air public prayer meeting on the streets of Kirribilli? 
one or two hands, but no one really, because they do, do, do. This is private, sacred stuff. Out there is the public secular sphere. You're, you're violating the realms. And what's interesting, this is a Western phenomenon, because non-Westerners don't feel this. So if you go to Asian restaurants, they always have a little idol set up. So even though it's public realm, they don't feel this divide. If you catch a taxi with a Muslim driver, you can easily talk to him about his faith. They don't go, whoa, dude, you're violating the sacred secular divide here. They don't feel that. But in the West, for the last four to 500 years, we've had this divide, rightly or wrongly, whether we like it or not, but it's just the way it is. And it's made Australia an unofficial closed country. So what can we do about this? All right, so back to the coffee, dinner, gospel model. Coffee is usually safe because it goes for minutes rather than hours, and it's usually in public space. It's in a coffee shop. So it's a safe space to get to know someone. You're not going to end up in a fight over religion or politics in a coffee shop. And it's safe. They can get up and leave anytime they want. So you always try to invite your friends for coffee. Let's do coffee. Let's do coffee. And it's safe. And with your neighbors, say, hey, just come. Just come for coffee. And what we, and the neighbors themselves do it. Like on a Friday, when everyone's come home from work, we just all walk around the front street with a bottle of wine and some glasses. Say, hey, who wants to join in, you know, and so we're in front yard, so the front yard is what? Is it public or private? It's public, so we're, so we're in safe space, so the front yard, coffee shop, so we're doing coffee, drinks, whatever, and it's safe. Now, once you've done coffee once or twice, now you say, hey, we really should catch up for dinner. Now, dinner is now hours rather than minutes, and it's in someone's home, so slowly you're moving them you're moving from, from public to private. You're slowly getting them to a less and less unofficial, closed country environment. And you're going to talk more and more about values here. And finally, when they're comfortable enough, one day there might be opportunities to talk about Jesus. And usually the sequence is, when you have coffee, you're talking about interests. And interests are really safe. You know, what do you like doing? I like fishing. You know, no, you don't. No, no, okay, so you won't end up in a fight. Well, what did you do on the weekend? Boy, it was hot, wasn't it? That sort of thing. When you have dinner, now you start talking about values a little bit more. Ah, oh, why do you like fishing? Why do you like sports? So you have to use values to talk about that. And then slowly, now, you can talk about worldviews. So, so that's a sequence. So it takes time. Begin with coffee, so be proactive about trying to get your friends to go to coffee, then be proactive about trying to get them to do dinner, and, and then gospel. So you're slowly moving them from public, secular, to private, um, sacred space, where you can safely talk about the gospel. All right, so that's the first thing, first point, first little um, suggestion. We need to get our friends to become their friends, merge our universes, go to their things before they can come to our things, and coffee, dinner, gospel. For listening to this week's episode of Christians Engaging Culture. 
Make sure you discuss this material after church and discipleship groups so we can sharpen one another as a community. Remember that we have evangelism training with John Mason coming up on the 7th and the 14th of July. For more resources we've handpicked on evangelism, check out the website at cec.stthomas.org.au. That's cec.st-thomas.org.au. And make sure you listen next week as we look at how to start a gospel conversation. Until then, remember the words of Charles Spurgeon, If Christ be anything, he must be everything.